0: there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be glorified in it, that you would uh, that you would be worshipped now by the honor that we give to your word, just as we've worshipped you in the truths that we have sung. So please speak to our hearts, uh, exalt yourself, and teach us more about who you are. It's in your name we pray. So 1 uh, Timothy, it's about, you know, seven-eighths of the way through the Bible, so kind of... Uh, Wednesday nights, anyways, working our way through in the New Testament where the, uh, the letters to the churches, and we've worked our way through the letters to the churches, and now we're in uh, letters to specific individuals that the Apostle Paul wrote, and so they're called the pastoral epistles because they're written to pastors, to men in ministry, and so we've talked about the last two weeks that the fact that these are written to pastors doesn't mean that you shouldn't read them if you're, a, if you're not a pastor because there's immense application for anybody who's in a position of ministry to the Lord, and every single one of us is in ministry to the Lord. And there are some spots in the book that are specific to, hey, if you're leading a church, here's some things you need to know. But even if we're not leading a church, we have, we read these books and realize, oh, this is the Apostle Paul's commentary on how a healthy church should function. And if I want to be a part of a healthy church, maybe, you know, if I move and I'm looking for a church, here's what I should look for. But if I want to be a contributing member to a church, here's what I should be doing. And so the first couple chapters, he's talked about the message that a church needs to have, and that's just the emphasis on the Word of God, the emphasis on prayer above everything else. He's talked about the mission, about how the church, uh, the roles that different people in the church are going to have and the opportunities that they will need, need to be filled and how the church should, quali- should kind of gauge if a person is qualified to step into that role. And tonight, he's going to kind of give some specific references to different members of the church. So different roles, different people... Uh, within the church, not necessarily in the role of leadership, but just how, how should the church function across, how should everybody in the church uh, be encouraged, be taught, what are some specific roles that we need to be aware of. And so there's a lot of application. But he starts off in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. So he starts off, and he says, Don't rebuke an older man. And really by, sort of by implication, he's saying don't rebuke anybody. And he's not saying, you need to be, you know, it's important to read scripture in the context of what the scripture says overall. And Second Timothy, he's going to tell Timothy, hey, preach the word, rebuke, reprove, exhort. So he's not saying there's never a time to rebuke someone for wrongdoing, but he's saying the church's job is not to fix people, right? He says don't rebuke them, exhort them. Don't, don't, don't take the position that you've been given, that God has given you, as a chance to say, okay, now here's what all of you are doing wrong. And here's how you need to suck it up and, and get with the game and get with the program. Uh, the role of the a pulpit is never a place for a pastor to complain to his congregation about what the congregation is doing wrong. He says you exhort them, encourage them, right? The, the most effective means of helping people grow in the Lord is by explaining to them from the word of God, how much God loves them and what he's done for them, what he wants to continue to do for them. And that's way more effective than trying to beat them over the head with the Bible, right? Chuck Smith said years ago, he said, if you, what you win them with is what you win them to. If you win people with pressure, you always have to keep a little pressure on because if you let it go, then they'll let go. If you win them with entertainment, you always have to be just a little bit more entertaining than you were last time. But if you win them with the word of God, The word of God stands forever. And the word of God will do the exhorting and the rebuking. The word of God does all the work. So he's exhorting Timothy, hey, you don't need to fix people. Exhort them. And this is just a continuation of what he said already in the ministry. And he gives qualifications, okay? Exhort an older man like you would exhort your father. Exhort an older woman like you would exhort your mother. Exhort a younger man like you would your brother. There's ideas here of, hey, this is... uh, even if I need to go to someone privately and say, hey, this, what you're doing here is really not, is not cool, uh, you need to do it in the same way that you would do it to your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister. And he does emphasize, and it's just worth noting, he says, exhort the younger women as sisters with all purity. The church is a place where women should feel safe and they should know that the men who are interacting with them are approaching from a, a position of purity right? And especially if that man is in a leadership position. The church is not the nice equivalent of a bar. It is not where you go to pick up a, a, a nice date, right? The church is where you go to study the word of God. And so it needs to maintain that purity. And Paul is, is warning Timothy, hey, this needs to happen. This needs to be seriously guarded. And so he's giving him an idea for broad, you know, very broad brushstrokes right here, right? You've got old men, old women, young men, young women, That pretty much covers the entire group. And so everybody's in there. Paul's saying, you exhort them. Don't rebuke them. Exhort them as you are continuing to teach them. So verse 3, verse 3 through 16, Paul's going to go into a specific element. And he's going to address sort of the the church's role in humanitarian need and meeting that need and specifically the church's role in meeting humanitarian need toward widows. And it's a really interesting passage, it has really more specifics uh, regarding this one question than almost any other piece of like church function that we have in the Bible. We're given more info on what to do in the case of a, a widow who needs financial aid than we are about what a service should structure, should look like, like we're given just some absolute specifics that Paul gives us. And so... We'll just kind of work our way through it. He says, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So it's kind of, you know, right off the bat, you're going to be like, okay, Paul, what exactly are we going with here? Because he says, honor the widows who are really widows, which feels a bit uh, dumb, right? Like if, if you're a widow, you're a widow. Right? But Paul's making a point. Paul's going to be careful in this. And, and this is, we've got to be careful as we read this. But Paul's going to emphasize to Timothy really clearly. And that is that the church's job is not to meet every need. The church's job is not to fix every problem. The church's job is not to make sure that everybody has all the money they need. The church's job is to preach the Word of God. And as a part of that, of course, Paul's going to say there's going to be opportunity and needs that the church should meet. But the church needs to be careful because if we're not careful, and this is true of churches just throughout all history, and that is that the good needs can overwhelm the important needs. There are a lot of good things that a church can do, but if you're not careful as a church, if you're not careful as an individual, the good can drown out the necessary. And so Paul's saying, okay, listen, I, we're going to discuss how should the church be helping widows in need? But Paul says you need to make sure that you're honoring the ones who are really widows, and the idea is going to go on he says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. Paul says, there's a role and a responsibility here for the family to step into. And he'll go on specifically down at the end and, and he's kind of specifically targeting believing family, right? If, if a widow has children who are not walking with the Lord and they've abandoned her, that's a bit of a different situation. But if a widow has children, the children should demonstrate in a sense, a repayment of everything that their mother has done for them for all their lives by taking care of her when she's older. And especially in the ancient world, this is important because uh, women could not go out and get jobs in the same way that they can today. If, If a woman lost her husband, she didn't just lose her husband. She lost everything. She lost all financial security. She lost every opportunity. She lost, like, I mean, she's looking at a very bleak future. And Paul says, hey, so it's a need. It's a very important need. And Paul says, before you jump on it, make sure that if she has children, there's an opportunity for the children to take care of the mother first. And this is just a principle we see over and over in Scripture. it's a principle that just bears keeping in mind in our current cultural context. And that is that when God starts with, how should we help somebody? He starts with the smallest groups first. God works small to big, okay? So if someone's in need, their family should help. And if the family is incapable or unwilling, then the church can help. But he he grows in proportion. Okay, our current world says if someone's in need, the government should help. And if the government can't help adequately, then the church should help. And if the church can't help adequately, then maybe your kids should help. Our world loves to work big to small. God is very focused on individuals. And so he says, no, help, financial aid, all of these things should start on a small level. And if it needs to expand from there, that's, that's a different question. But the Lord sees aid as originating in the family. And then, you know, sort of the family, the tribe, the nation, the family, then the church. And then if the government needs to help, that's, a, that's its own question. But just notice this principle. In verse 5, Paul goes on, he says, Now, she who is really a widow and left alone, trusting God, and continues in supplication and prayers day and night, night and day. Verse 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So there's a couple big things here that we need to not miss. So first of all, there's, it's not directly stated, but there's an implication that Paul was working with, and that is that if a widow is in need, she doesn't have children who can take care of her, uh... And the church is going to then step into the role of we're going to help provide aid. There's, in a sense, there's an implied trade-off where he says then this is for a woman, someone who's really a widow, left alone, trusting God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. There's a sense, you want to be careful not to overstate it, but you also don't want to lose the idea here. There's a sense that if a church is going to help provide for a widow, in a sense, they're putting her on the payroll to run the prayer ministry. If she's in that position of, I truly have no one, and the church is going to step into the role, then there is a trade-off where this is not free help. The church is saying, okay, look, you are in a specific season of life that God has allowed you to be in, so use it well. Use it wisely. Devote yourself to prayer. And, and don't ever underestimate that. And, and I'm going to say this nicely, but an old lady praying hard is a powerful thing. Right? Don't ever underestimate that. Paul says, that's a, that's a ministry worth paying for. But don't just say, hey, we're going to give a free handout. No, no, no. There's an, there's an implied trade-off going on here. And then he elaborates, if she has children and they are refusing to pay for her, understand their role. He says, if, if you do not provide for your own, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an unbeliever. That is harsh language. And Paul means it, every bit of it. He takes it seriously. If you have an opportunity to provide for someone, to take care of someone specifically within your family and you're refusing to, the Lord takes that very seriously. Verse 9, he's going to go on. He's going to give us some criteria for this. He says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So there's some criteria that a church needs to follow in determining whether or not they're going to step into this role of providing aid for a woman, uh, for a widow. And, you know, some people get hung up on, is the 60 years old, like, cultural, or is it universal across all of church history? I have no idea. Verse 11, but refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they cast off their first faith, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. So he specifies here that this is not something that the church should engage in for younger widows. And specifically, he says, because they're going to want to remarry. And this isn't what, what Paul is describing here is not a revolving door of, hey, we'll, we'll put you on the payroll for a couple months. Oh, sorry, you found a cute guy. You're off the payroll. It's, it's hey, we're, we're kind of stepping into a role to take care of you until you die. And so there's, there's a, there needs to be a sense of permanence that both sides understand. And so he's, he says, the younger widow... It's just, if she gets too much time on her hands, it just might not be a good thing. And so I would encourage her, he says, to marry, bear children, and don't give an opportunity to the enemy to speak reproachfully. Paul's not downing this as a calling, but he's saying there are different ministry roles for different women at different times in their lives. And so if you're in a season where you can have kids and raise a family, it's a great thing. Don't, don't say, oh, no, 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 I'm only interested in the really spiritual stuff. I want to be part of the prayer ministry. I want the church to pay for all my needs. No, no. Paul says, hey, this is a great, You, if you decide you want to get remarried and you want to raise a family, you know what you're doing? You're denying the enemy an opportunity to speak reproachfully. He says, when you do this, you give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. If you live your life in such a way that Satan cannot reproach you, he can't say anything bad against you, there's no shame in that. That's not a lesser calling. That's the power of God working in your life. It's in a different ministry context and then he goes on he just reiterates it again if a believing man or woman has widows let them relieve them and don't let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows the church is always going to have more needs than it can meet the lord has more supplies than the church could ever need but there are more needs than the church will ever be able to meet and so the church has to be very careful that we don't just turn into a humanitarian club right We're not some organization whose existence is to make people happy or to make people feel good or to take care of their immediate needs. Those opportunities will come and we need to step into them faithfully. But that is not our primary goal. The primary goal of the church is to make sure that people understand that they're sinners and that Jesus Christ is is God, that he came to earth and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He ascended back into heaven. And any person who asked Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins can be saved forever. That's the purpose of the church. And if the church steps away from that into anything, no, it doesn't matter how good it is, the church will lose its effectiveness. Okay? So what Paul's not saying is it is not saying don't support widows? James says, undefiled religion, It's to take care of widows and orphans. In the the book of Acts, we read it last week, there was a need to make sure the widows were getting fed well, and the apostle said, you pick men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and faith. It's a serious role. But the church has a function and a role that it cannot lose sight of, and that is to preach the gospel and to teach the word of God. So, there's a context for everything that's going on there. So Paul's addressing the role of widows in the church. And now verse 17 He's going to go on and dress elders. We talked about the last couple of weeks, elders, bishops, pastors. It's really all the same role, okay? Uh, different Greek words, but basically it's describing the same function. It's the person in a position or persons in a position of leadership in the church. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So right there, it's always fun to teach this passage. It's actually always super awkward to teach this passage. But he says, hey, you know what? You need to show honor and support to the elders, and in particular, to the ones who teach the word of God. And when he says show double honor, the idea there is that they're worthy of honor and financial support. And understand, back it up in your mind, if you will, to a few weeks ago, we were in the books of... Uh, Philippians and Thessalonians, and Paul's talking about, hey, I don't, take money from any, I don't take money from anybody. I pay my own way. And it's important to understand that the, the, the scripture upholds both ideals. It is completely appropriate and good for a pastor to be bivocational, to say, you know what, I'm going to teach the word faithfully, but I'm also going to work another job, and that's going to, I'm going to sort of take care of my own financial needs in that sense so the church won't be burdened. It's also completely appropriate if a pastor is laboring faithfully in the Word of God for the church to say, okay, you know what, we're going to help support you financially so that you can do that more effectively. We're going to free you up so that you have time because we are coming to you regularly asking you to teach us from the Word of God. And so we recognize that that takes some time and so we're willing to help provide for that financially. Scripture pulls both of those. And that's important because, you know, sometimes pastors, sometimes really uh, anybody, can sort of get an attitude about, well, he's a full time pastor, so he's really spiritual, or he's bivocational, so he's, he's the real deal. No, no, no. Both, both methods are completely endorsed by Scripture. As long as the person is handling the Word of God faithfully, it's approved. But Paul says, look, if they're in a situation, and sometimes it depends on the needs of the church and the size of the church, if they're in a situation where they need financial provision, don't, don't begrudge them that. Don't complain about supporting your pastor, he's saying. He says for this, and then he goes back to, uh, to the Old Testament law and then also to the book of Luke, to the idea from the Old Testament and from the words of Jesus that, you know what, it is appropriate to pay someone for the work they do. If someone's bivocational, that's fine. If someone is supported by the church, that's fine too. Verse 19, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning Rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. So he's, so more or less where he's going is, is, is you need to support, honor, and protect the elders in the church. Okay? And so he says, do not, do not let somebody bring you this accusation and they can't back it up and, and all of a sudden you're, you're ready to, to kick out an elder. He says, do not do that. Do not do that. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except... Unless, unless there's two or three witnesses to back it up. But those who are sinning, you rebuke in the presence of everybody. If an elder is walking in sin, the time to rebuke him, Paul says, is in service. You, you rebuke him in the presence of everybody. And we all sit here in our nice, you know, slightly chill vibe and say, that would be super awkward. And yeah, it would be. Because Paul's working, he's saying, you know, understand the role of an elder needs to be taken very, very seriously. And so you need to not let someone come against an elder with a false accusation, but you need to also not let an elder be getting away with stuff that he shouldn't. And so it's a very, it's a very serious role, right? James talks about those who teach are going to come under a stricter judgment. The Lord takes this role very seriously. If someone is in a position of authority in a church, The Lord will hold them accountable. But he also wants to protect them from false accusations. So both things are there back to back. Verse 21, Paul says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. This is not to be a halfway job. You do this all the way, Timothy. Verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So Paul's just going on. He said, listen, you take this seriously, right? This this whole book, really, we said could be summed up by Paul telling Timothy, focus, hold on to this. Do not lose sight of what I have given you. Do not lose sight of the fact that I have charged you to teach the word, that I said, first of all, I want prayer to be the defining element of this church. You hold on to these things. Don't forget that I gave definitive ideas, definitive rules laid out, definitive frameworks and groundworks laid out for this is the qualifications for someone who wants to serve in the position of an elder. These are the qualifications for a man or a woman who wants to serve in the position of a deacon. These things matter, Paul is saying. Do not be flippant with them. And church is a funny blend sometimes because you want to be structured enough that you're not losing your mind, but you also don't want to be so structured that you say the Lord cannot move in this way. And so when it comes to how a church functions, there needs to be a system. There does need to be a system of governance. There needs to be a method by which people can be held accountable, but also protected. There needs to be a method by which people are taught the word of God, but there also needs to be a freedom. So Paul's saying, hey, you know what? Do all these things. Just don't lay hands on anybody hastily. Don't be in a rush to qualify people. There's no need. The Holy Spirit can keep teaching the church, even if you're shorthanded, right? You don't have to panic. And say, oh my gosh, we got to get somebody else. No, no, hey, slow down. The Lord is never in a hurry. Verse 23, he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So here, and we'll kind of jump it back, but you know, last week we talked about, was it last week? Two weeks ago. It was last week. Last week we talked about, Paul says that Elders should not be given to wine, and deacons should not be given to much wine. And you could argue if you don't like the idea, and that's fine, but I think that the best application for that is that someone in the role of a pastor or a bishop or an elder should not be partaking of alcoholic substances. And that a person in the role of a deacon shouldn't be taking of too much. So the role of a deacon is the role of a person who's just serving in the church. Paul says, hey, do it in moderation, but if you're going to partake, that's acceptable. If you're in a role of leadership in the church, you should have a different standard because, for a couple of reasons. One, you're setting a much clearer example. And if people are coming into your church who are struggling with substance abuse, and they watch you partake, and they're going to be confused and they're going to struggle. Another part is, you know, if the church is supporting a pastor financially, um, they're not paying the pastor so that he can get the good stuff, right? They're not paying the pastor to get top shelf liquor. They're paying the pastor to teach the word of God, but. Here, Paul kind of backs the statement up, or he walks it back a little bit, I guess you could say. He says, Don't just drink water. Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmity. So some people look at this and say, Ha, ah, see, pastors can drink, it's right there in the Bible. Paul told Titus told Timothy, have a little wine. And I would say, Yes, Paul does tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. But notice a couple things. This means that the implication is Timothy was in a position of, I won't drink. And Paul has to say, bro, it is okay to take a little bit so that your gut can clean up. You're basically, you're killing yourself with bad water. This is, it is okay to take what's necessary. And he says, take it for your stomach's sake. He doesn't say, take it for your pleasure. Take it for your buzz. Take it for your chill. Take it for your stomach, Right? Take it so you can be teaching the word of God instead of being stuck in the bathroom. And he's, he's just kind of making a point that it is appropriate to use what you need in the church for what you need. If, if, if a Christian breaks their leg and needs pain meds, take the pain meds. But don't let them be controlling you, right? If you go to a situation in the world where there's bad water and it's going to kill you or really mess you up and you've got some wine to cut, to kill the bacteria, pour the wine in. Right, but he's just making a point here that yeah, it is. It's not a religious right of oh no, I don't drink, therefore I'm more spiritual. It's I want to set a standard. Paul is saying for the bishops and the elders. And so, you know, I encourage you. Paul says to I'm, I'm telling the pastors you should not be drinking, but if that's what's necessary for your physical health, you do what you need to do for your stomach's sake. Verse 24: Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So he's saying, be careful when you make judgment calls about people. Because some people, their flaws are very obvious. And other people, you will not know their flaws until the day of judgment, when the Lord calls them out for unconfessed sin. And you will say, I never saw it coming. And the Lord will say, I saw it all along. And some people, the good things that they do, the ways that they're growing... You say, "Oh my gosh, it's like it's so right there." And some people you're like, "I don't think that person is hearing a word that I'm saying." And they're soaking it in. Right? So Paul said, "Be careful." You know, remember, go back in your mind to the Old Testament when God told the prophet Samuel to go and and pick the next king for the nation of Israel. And he goes and he says, "It's going to be one of the sons of this guy named Jesse. And, and Samuel looks at the first one and he says, that has got to be the one. And God says, no, it is not. I have rejected that one. And that's a strong word. God says, I have, I have, I have no use for that one in my kingdom. I've, and he says, man looks at the outside and God looks at the heart. God's really specific with Samuel there and he's carrying the same idea here that be careful, be careful. When you watch Christians, when you're watching the people in your church, it's really easy. We're very, very good at deciding who we like and who we don't like and who we think ought to be growing faster and who we're disappointed in and who we'd really rather hang out with. And Paul says, you know what, that's not your role. Your role is teach the Word of God, to love the people unconditionally, to be an example to them, to to just do the work that you've been given to do. Do what's right in front of you. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. And so here, Paul specifically is referencing people who are slaves in the Roman Empire. But we've talked about before that slavery covered a, a huge range in the ancient world. And we tend to think of slavery strictly in an American context where there's a racial element and it's, it's, very, it's very distinct okay, in American history. Truth be told, slavery, for the vast majority of all human experience, has had nothing to do with race. It's had to do with power and money. And so in the Roman world, slavery was often an economic situation. I went in debt, couldn't pay it, now I'm a slave. And so really, it's not that much different, and, and you'd go into slavery until you paid off your debt. And so really, it's not that much different than our employment situation today. I mean, if you have a mortgage on your house, in a sense, you're a slave to the bank, right? The bank owns your house, and if you don't pay, they can take your house and throw you on the street. Like You signed an agreement on paper that that's what they can do. And so, in a sense, you're a slave to the bank. Uh, so. There's a lot of application when we come to passages in Scripture that are exhortations for slaves and servants. If you have a job, these apply to you. And so Paul says, hey, you know what? Count your own master or count your own employer worthy of all honor so that the name of God may not be blasphemed. How you treat your employer is a symbol of how you view your relationship with the Lord, Paul says. Because if the Lord has done everything that he said he has, Then the joy that should be in your heart, the power of the Holy Spirit that should be in your heart, the change that should be taking place should be obvious to your boss, and it should be obvious in part by the way that you work, by how you conduct yourself, because you walk in and you say, you know what? I believe in integrity. I believe that God saved me not so that I could lie, but so that I could tell the truth. I'm I'm freed to not walk in sin. If you can go back in your mind to Romans, when we were in there earlier this year, we talked about we talk about you know we have freedom in Christ. That's not freedom to sin. That's freedom to not have to sin. So I no longer have to cheat my boss. I no longer have to lie to my boss or complain about my boss behind his back. And he elaborates and says specifically, if you have a believing master or if you have a Christian employer, that is not an excuse to say, well, hey, we're brothers in the Lord, right? We're buddies. We go to church together. No, no. He says, hey, in particular, you serve them because you're going to bless a fellow believer. You're going to have a shared experience of watching the Lord work and teach and exhort these things, Paul says. So if that's not you, I'm not rebuking you. I'm exhorting you. Demonstrate the working of God in your life by your conduct towards your employer. Verse 3. Paul says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Paul says, If anyone teaches otherwise, and is he talking about the last paragraph? Or is he talking about the entire book up to this point? I think you could probably say it's either way. But if anybody teaches otherwise to what Paul is saying here, Paul says, that person is proud. If he's teaching other than, what does he say? The doctrine that accords with godliness. If somebody's teaching a doctrine that is not about the pursuit of God and growing in godliness, that person is proud, knowing nothing. Not only are they proud, they're proud and ignorant. And they are obsessed with disputes and arguments from which, he says, are going to come, there's going to be fruit of that, right? If there's, if there's a proud man who's ignorant because he thinks he knows the will of the Lord and he's refusing to actually walk biblically, there's going to be a result. And that's going to be envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wrangling. These are the things that happen to men of corrupt minds who are destitute of truth. They have no truth in them. And they suppose, he says, that godliness is a means of gain. They're going to see godliness as a way to get something, right? They're going to see being a Christian as a means of getting something, whether it's money or influence or power or prestige or relationships, whatever it is, they see their role in the church as, what can I get out of this church? Can I get something from these people? And Paul says, you stay away from those people. You do not let them corrupt you. He says, verse six, he's continuing the idea. He says, now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So he says, there are some people who think that godliness is a means of gain. He says, no, godliness with contentment is gain. Godliness is not a means to an end, it is the end. Godliness with contentment, when you say, what have I got? I have godliness. I have the presence of God, the power of God dwelling inside my heart. I have the right now equipping me and speaking to me, and teaching me, and convicting me of my sin, but also giving me promise of hope and restoration. I have the promise of eternal life. I know that when this body wears out, I'm going to be given a new, incorruptible one. Paul says, what more do you need? Right, like, like, really? What more do you need? And he goes on, he says, for we brought nothing into this world. I think we'd all agree with that. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. doesn't matter how nice the suit is that they bury you in. After a while, there's nothing left, right? You're not taking anything with you when you go. And he says, verse eight, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Paul doesn't even say food and clothing and shelter. Isn't that interesting? It's possible to be homeless and content if you have Jesus Christ. Paul says, there are some things you need. You probably shouldn't be walking around stark naked and you need food to stay alive. If you have that, that's all you need. If you have Jesus Christ, that is all you need. And sometimes we can get, we, as Christians, we're like, well, yeah, but I need, you know, I mean, I need food and clothing and a car or a car repair or things that we say, you know, are, again, kind of, you know, maybe really important things that are really hard to work around in this world. If you don't have a phone in this current world, it's a little bit challenging sometimes. So we need food and clothing and a phone? No, he doesn't say that. We need food and clothing and a car. No, it doesn't say that. Food and clothing and a house? No, it doesn't say that. What do we need? We need Jesus Christ. We don't need anything else. If God has forgiven your sins, if you know that your sins are forgiven and that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't need anything else. Okay? And I've had the opportunity uh, to get to know people over the years from a huge array of backgrounds. It's really one of the, just one of the things I love about the life I've been given, is I've had the chance to meet people in so many different situations, okay? And I have met people who had nothing or next to it, and I have met people who had a ton of stuff. I remember a guy I was talking to one time, he owned a uh, stair-making company, and he was talking about before the recession, their company was huge, and then it kind of tanked after the recession. He's like, yeah man 2007 or six whatever we sold 55 million dollars worth of product that was such a hassle and i'm like yeah i bet it was he's like yeah thankfully we're only a third of the size now it's like so much better i'm like 55 million divided by three like yeah yeah bless your heart right uh and i've and he was and, and i'm not faulting him he's a super gracious guy he's a very good steward of his money he's very generous but uh you know i met him i've met people in different parts of the world, different parts of the country, who have nothing. And you know what I've learned is there's really no difference in what makes them happy or unhappy. Right? If they are content, if they have godliness with contentment, they're set. If they have anything else, they aren't. And he says in verse 9, he's going to carry this idea really pretty much through the end of the book, in a sense. But he says, But those who desire to be rich fall the temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for, from which, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice, he doesn't say being rich. He says the desire to be rich. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And that... Now, we'll talk about it in a second here. Arguably, every single one of us, just by virtue of the fact that we live in the United States of America, is rich. But desiring to be rich or desiring to be richer in and of itself, the desire will lead every one of us into temptations and snares and into many foolish and harmful lusts which will, what's the word, drown you. If you desire to be rich and you can't find contentment in godliness... Nothing will satisfy you, and you will tread water until you go under. And he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The, the word kinds of are in italics. We talked about this the last couple weeks. That, that's, that it's inserted by the translators to help the sentence flow better in English. Okay, but a literal translation would be, for the love of money is a root of all evil. And sometimes we try and walk it back like, well, no, it's all kinds of evil and, and it's, you know, it's, it's broad. No, no. In the original translation, the word of God says the love of money is a root of all evil. What is the love of money? It's desiring. It's I want something. I want to ascend. I want to have more. I want to be more powerful. What was the original sin? It was when Satan said, I will ascend. Going up. The desire to go up apart from the Lord is sin. And that desire, Paul says, is a root of all evil. And often, most often in our lives, it manifests a desire for money because we think that money can buy us just about everything, right? But it can't. And so Paul's just saying, understand this. If, if you have this desire and you do not let it, and you do not contain it, it will drown you. But you, verse 11, O man of God, flee these things. And pursue, not the desire of riches, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Paul said a second ago that the men who are teaching otherwise, their lives are going to bear fruit. And what is that? Envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings. He says, Timothy, that is not your job. That is not your call. That is not your pursuit. Your job is to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and gentleness. A man of God or a woman of God should be defined by the fact that their life has the fruit of the Spirit. These are, these are fruits of the Spirit. These are fruits that come from walking with the Lord. And the great thing about fruit is it's not manufactured on a clock. Fruit does not have second shift, right? How is fruit made? Fruit is in good soil, on a good root system, with water and sunlight, and fruit comes. It just comes. It happens. And so he says, Hey, you know what? Bear the fruits of the Spirit. You be in fellowship with the Word of with the Lord. You be in the Word of God, and you are in pursuit of these things. Verse twelve fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you, in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Paul's saying, hang on to this. Hang on to this book. Remember what I have encouraged you. Remember how I have challenged you. Hold fast to it. Verse 15, which he will manifest, he being Christ, in his own time, he was the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So Paul, is, he, just, he does this oftentimes. He starts describing the Lord and gets caught up and just clicks into worship. right? Paul's trying to make a point to Timothy, but then he's like, yeah, you know, don't forget about Jesus Christ coming. Jesus Christ, man, he's just the blessed. He's the king of kings. He's the only one with immortality. He's, like, he's, he's going on this, this total rabbit trail because Jesus Christ is worth rabbit trailing over. right? He says, hey, you know what? I want to tell you something about Jesus Christ, but I forget what it was because I'm too obsessed over who Jesus Christ is. So let's just pause and reflect on that, he says. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, they may lay hold on eternal life. So he says, this is specific exhortation to those who are rich. Now, you know, in America, we all sort of have a lopsided view, but it's important to understand if you are sitting in the room right now, we're in an air-conditioned building. We all just had a meal out back where we ate either until we were full or until we stopped because we're on a diet. Uh, We all had the opportunity to eat food For most of us, that was probably not our first meal of the day, right? If all those factors are true for us, then by definition, we're we're some of the richest people in the world. I don't know what the official numbers are, I meant to look them up, but we're in the top, whatever, it's three or five percent of all humanity, okay? Pretty much every person in this room. So when he says, instruct those who are rich, who's he talking to? Every single one of us. Not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, where do you put your trust and where do you put your confidence? Do you put it anywhere other than Christ? Because if so, it is misguided. And he says, don't be haughty. Do not think that your money is a means of getting you something. Because it's not. It's a stewardship. It's a responsibility. If the Lord has blessed you with a lot of money, that's great. Handle it as wisely as you possibly can. But it's it's not for you to make yourself happy. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. God does not give you money so you can be happy because it won't make you happy. God gives you money as an effective stewardship for his kingdom, right? So don't be haughty. Don't don't trust in riches. And rather, he says, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. What should define a rich person is their generosity, right? And, And sometimes we think of it, we read that, and we're like, yeah, Boy, that ought to define a rich person. They ought to be more generous with me. That's not what Paul's saying. What ought to define us is that we are rich in good works. Right? Ready to give, willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. You know, it's been said, it's kind of dumb, but it's so true that it doesn't matter if it's dumb, is that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. It is possible to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And... It's an interesting thing that scripture actually encourages us to do it. To say, I want to be rich in heaven. But you will only be rich in heaven by choosing to be rich in good works on earth. By choosing to say, I am not letting riches define me down here. So if you want to be rich in heaven, that's a wonderful goal. Just like you said, hey, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, he never said that's a bad thing. He just said, you just got to be last down here. Person who's in the position of lowest servanthood down here will be Exalted person who sees their riches down here as something to be a blessing to other people is, gonna, is laying up for themselves eternal riches. And in case you don't know, eternal riches have a much better return on investment than the ones down here. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed from the faith. So f- Focus. Hold fast. Guard the truth. Guard it in your own heart. Guard it in the hearts of those around you who you have influence over. Guard what's been committed to you. And the last last bit, grace be with you. Amen. Grace be with you, right? What is grace? It is all the good things that God has promised us. It's the real riches. God says, hey, that, and Paul says, hey, that stuff be with you. Amen. And amen is just an old word that means so be it. So he says, hey, the real riches, may those be yours. And everybody said, yeah. That's what he was saying. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenges in it for us, the truths in it that we can hold on to. We pray that it would work its way deep into our hearts, that your spirit would teach us, that you would guide us and lead us, that we would be just continually drawing closer to you. God, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. Have your way with us. We thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only one who dwells in immortality, that you are forever. You are good. We praise you. We thank you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray, amen.